Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. If you're using the red Bibles that are around, we're on page 976. And we're going to read starting in verse 36. Okay. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs and all the widows approached him weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her to stand up. He called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Midtown. Uh, As we get started here in Acts, let's just take a moment to actually set our stuff down, now that you've already gotten in that mode, Uh, as we do every week, and take a moment of silence. And so we believe that our Heavenly Father as Christians is here with us, and that he longs to speak to us uh, as his children. And so we're going to take a moment to take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out, and maybe clear your mind and your heart of distractions and kind of that inner chatter that can sometimes keep us from, from hearing from the Spirit, and just ask God to speak to you. And then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump into Acts 9. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us, that you are always mindful of us and present to us. We pray that we would show up in response, fully present to you this morning by the power of your spirit. You long to speak to us, to change us, to transform us. And so God, we just want to open ourselves right now, bodies, minds, souls, hearts, to your spirit. We pray that you would speak, that you would move, that you would change us. Move us towards obedience as we respond to your invitations this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we tell the stories that we tell? I don't know about you, but when I get together with my family, there are stories always being told. I have a sister who's three and a half years younger than me, and it's interesting how, I don't know if your family does this around the dinner table. My wife has two brothers Um, you can live the same reality in the same household and yet experience it so differently and you start to tell stories and you're like, wait a minute, that's not what happened. And and you have such different experiences. Um, And the stories that are told are are interesting because we're always kind of editing who is in the story. So like, it's interesting, like why do we include this person but we leave out this person? Um, That's kind of a way that we tell stories. Um, Sociologists tell us that storytelling is really critical to the kind of the binding of a community and the transmission of culture from generation to generation. Stories reveal our deepest values. They reveal our 
maybe highest aspirations, but also some of our most painful wounds. One of my favorite examples of this uh, recently, my kids have become obsessed, my younger kids, with the movie Encanto. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, like I just want to encourage you, watch it, but just know like, it, it, you will never stop singing it. And we've actually gotten to the place now where like, we've moved on from the English soundtrack to now we're learning the Spanish. Like My daughter knows all the songs in Spanish. It's a Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, movie, animated movie, and the key character is there in the middle, uh, Mirabelle. Mirabelle, I guess you could say, is kind of a wounded uh, young uh, woman who's coming of age, and she's beginning to understand. So her family, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but her family all had these magical powers. But as we know, there's a dark side uh, to, to magic, right? And she's beginning to experience the dark side of this. And if I were to, so those of you who seen it, do you know what the most famous song is on the soundtrack? Tell me. We don't talk about Bruno, right? Like, I'm going to get it going in your head right now. We don't talk about Bruno. And she, as she begins to get into her family's history, it's fascinating. Like, if you're into family systems theory, like, this is all family system stuff. But she begins to realize that her family literally won't talk about Uncle Bruno. And he's this guy who was given the gift of prophecy, but is viewed by the family and kind of stigmatized as a villain. And so he becomes a key character. Actually, here, you don't see him if you're not looking in the back left, upper left corner there. He's the guy with the green hood on. That's Uncle Bruno, right? And so we all have these uh, stories that we, that we tell and, and people that we include or maybe edit out of those stories. Now, what's interesting about this story in Luke chapter 9 is that Luke is a storyteller, right? He's a historian. He is a disciple of Jesus, but he's writing this. He's investigated the claims of, of, of Jesus, and he's writing the stories, editing and compiling these stories for a guy named Theophilus, who we believe is a wealthy, uh, maybe political figure in, uh, in Rome, in, in the Roman Empire. And it's interesting to me, like, the question that's kind of got in, like, in my head all week as I'm thinking about this is, like, why did he tell this story? Why did he choose to include this story when he had hundreds of stories that he could have chosen? Why choose this story? I want to ask a question um, as you think about the book of Acts. For those of you who maybe are familiar with the book of Acts, um, we've been in this, this uh, series here for a couple of months. Who comes to mind when you think of the word disciple in the book of Acts? So if you're in marketing, this is called like brand impression, right? So like what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the word disciple in the book of Acts? It's probably Peter or James or John or maybe Barnabas if, you're, if you grew up in church, right? Um, now, here's another question. Let's go outside the book of Acts. As you think about church history and all, the, all the, the people who've most shaped church history, and I would ask you the question or survey Christians in the community, who are the 10 people who've most shaped church history? Who would come into your mind? I guarantee, now, if you're, if you're a real nerd and you grew up around church, you might know, like, Tertullian. Maybe you've heard of a, a guy named Augustine. Um, Benedict. St. Patrick, which, happy St. Patrick's Day for those of us Irish people. Uh, by the way, he has nothing to do with alcohol, like drinking and getting drunk and, like, pinching people. He was actually a missionary to Ireland. Okay, just clear the record. Maybe you've heard of John Calvin and Martin Luther the Puritans, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, the Wesleyan uh, International Headquarters are here in Indianapolis. Maybe you've heard of William Carey or Hudson Taylor. How about Tabitha? You ever heard a sermon on Tabitha? I, I've, I've listened to a lot of sermons. I realize I've never heard a sermon on Tabitha. 
Why have I never heard a sermon? I want a sermon on Tabitha. So I'm giving you a sermon on Tabitha, right? I, I want you to hear this story. Thank you, Miles. I want you to hear this story because Luke is intentionally telling the story about a female disciple, and he mentions her by name, something that was a big no-no in the ancient world, right? When you told stories, you told stories in the ancient world about men, and if you told a story about a woman, it was only to shame another man. You never mention a woman by name. And it's kind of weird because in the narrative flow, this is a seam, what you call a seam. It's stitching together two other narratives. In chapter eight, Peter is on his way to Joppa, and Joppa is going to become ground zero for kind of the launch of the multi-ethnic church. When the Spirit is poured out, we're going to look at this uh, in two weeks, the Spirit of God is poured out in Joppa, and, and the church really becomes truly multi-ethnic, uh, and, and it's a really important moment. Saul is converted at the beginning of chapter nine. And so and in some ways, this is a transition, and yet in some ways, Luke stops, and the language that he uses is so specific, right? Like he uses language that only shows up here in the book of Acts. And, and so this is really about Peter, and, and Peter is an apostle. Really, this story has echoes of Jesus' ministry. Specifically, if you look at Luke chapter 7, the language is very similar to what Jesus does in raising and healing people uh, from sickness and from the dead. And then really, that is kind of an echo of Elijah. So Peter's being presented as kind of an Elijah-Jesus prophetic type figure. And in the midst of all that, he stops and he gives, notice he gives twice as much real estate and way more detail to Tabitha than he does to uh, Aeneas in the previous story. Fascinating to me. And, And this is why I want us to pay attention because I think we don't pause enough to, I think, acknowledge um, the, the gifts and the contribution that women make in the book of Acts to the mission of God. That's what I want us to hear today, right? I, and now, again, Jesus is the hero of the story, right? And Tabitha would say the same thing, right? So it's, this, is, this is not just a be like Tabitha sermon, but Jen Wilkin um, wrote a great article. She's a um, speaker, writer, friend of mine. She, she wrote an article a couple years ago, and she said, the title of the article said something like this, Christianity is not a single parent family. We often honor church fathers, but we forget if the church is a household of faith, we need fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, if we're going to honor the fullness of what God's doing in the New Testament narrative. Alan Kreider, who was a, who's a prominent historian, he wrote uh, a book that you don't have to read. I read it for you. Uh, it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's all about kind of the, the, the history of the church in the early Roman Empire. And here's what he says about this particular topic. He says, as Christians across the centuries have told the story of the early church, they have accorded the central roles to men. The intellectuals and the writers were men. They are called church fathers, and their writings have been called patristics. Lists of leaders of communities were always lists of men. The early centuries have been what historian Christine Trevitt has called a no-woman's land of Christian history. But this is not how early Christianity appeared to its contemporaries. And the careful work of scholars, especially women scholars, has helped, helped us see the growth of the church with new eyes. As the worldwide Christian movement gained in membership, women played now just underline this, an indispensable, an essential part in the story. So that's what I want us to learn from today. I want us to learn from Tabitha, what it looks like to be this kind of church. Robin and I want to teach on this together, and really there's just two, two kind of big ideas from this text here in Acts chapter 9. One, I want us to see how Jesus and how the early church welcomed women as disciples and why that matters for us now as we think about our identity as people in, a modern, uh, in our modern context. Second thing, I want us to see how, the, how Jesus in the early church 
celebrated the presence and the gifts of women as critical to bringing life into the world. That's what we're looking at as a church this year with Acts. What does it look like to bring life, to bring renewal into the world? And if we're gonna have that kind of impact and see that kind of credibility, we must learn to, and continue to be, I believe that we do a good job of this, but continue to be a church that welcomes women as disciples and that is seeking to grow in that identity while also celebrating and creating space for and equipping women to use their gifts to advance the mission of God. Okay, so let's look at this together so you don't think I'm just pulling this out of uh, some uh, gender theory class at IU or whatever. Like this is, it's all in the text, okay? So let's look at it together. In Joppa, verse, uh, chapter nine here, verse 36. There was a disciple named Tabitha, which is also translated Dorcas. Now notice the order there is very important. Disciple, and then she's Tabitha. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. Tabitha in the, is Aramaic, and so Luke translates this into Greek. And the first thing in the story that Luke draws our attention to, the most important thing Luke says you need to know about Tabitha is that she's a disciple. This word here, the feminine form of disciple, is only used once in the entire New Testament. Dorcas uh, is actually a translation that means gazelle or deer. It's the same word in the Song of Songs that, that, the, uh, that the, the man uses to describe his beloved, which has often been used as a parable to talk about Christ's love for the church. That's the same word there, beloved, the gazelle, right? So this may not seem like a big deal to us. You don't read this. You just be easy to gloss over this. And be like, yeah, yeah, she's a disciple. Because we live, right, like in a modern egalitarian kind of democratic society on this side of third wave feminism and me too, like this doesn't seem like a big deal, but I just want us to pause and not miss how revolutionary this would have been to Luke's hearers, to his audience. Again, this is a very patriarchal social context in the ancient Mediterranean world. So for a woman to be a disciple, I mean, those two things don't go together in this time. The word disciple literally means a student or a learner or an apprentice. And so what would happen is these famous rabbis, these great rabbis, would identify talented, bright, young males, and they would invite them to follow them. They would say, come and follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. To be an apprentice is not just to, to like enroll in seminary and take some theology classes. To be a disciple is to actually be a person who literally left everything to follow the rabbi, to be with them, to spend time with them relationally, to become like them so that they could learn to imitate their way of life. This word for disciple, it's a word that would, be, uh, would have been attributed very commonly in Hellenism to students of famous Greco-Roman philosophers like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. So it's a very common word. But here's the catch. Women were never, rarely maybe, invited to be disciples. Unless the rabbi happened to be her husband or happened to be her master in that kind of uh, servant context and was willing to teach her at great cost to themselves, women were rarely invited to be disciples. Rabbis didn't speak directly to women. They didn't enter their homes. And while some wealthier women had forged good lives and held important positions in society, like there was kind of a women's movement happening in the early Roman Empire, but by and large, <clears throat> women were seen as inferior. They lacked formal educational opportunities. They were often excluded from learning and from the intellectual discourse of politics and society and religion. Now, here's the thing. Christianity was so radically different, right? And we, and we just, it's, it's easy for us to miss this, but it was so different. From its inception, the Christian community modeled the full inclusion of women as disciples. And, and here's the peculiar thing about Luke. Luke has a passion and an interest. If you look at, scholars will point out, 
Um, Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, tells more unique stories that, are not, that don't show up in the other gospels, and he lists more specific names of female disciples of Jesus than in all the other gospels combined. He has a passion to lift up the stories of these often overlooked women who had low status in that day. And if you notice, uh, he tells those stories in pairs, Aeneas and Tabitha. Again, Luke chapter 7 is the closest parallel we have to this. Jairus' daughter, the centurion's daughter, and the widow of Nain, right? Think about the beginning of the book of Luke. How does the book of Luke start? Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon. He does this, th- I mean, it's, it's one of the key themes in the book of Luke that's not repeated in the other gospels. And he does that for a very specific reason. It's subtle, but what he's doing is he's emphasizing the availability of the kingdom of God for both genders. Because again, he lived in a cultural context that assumed God didn't work and speak in women. He spoke through the men. He's reversing the status and the values that people would have shown up expecting in the kingdom of God. And he says, no, in the kingdom of God, the weak are the strong. The the last are the first. The least are the greatest. And that all kind of culminates in Acts chapter 2 with with this quotation of Joel where he says, the spirit of God is going to be poured out on whom? On your sons and your daughters, on your male and female disciples. This is what the spirit of God is doing. And again, this is not just about, again, we, we need to get out of our kind of cultural context now. This is not just about women's rights, although I'm for women's rights. Hear me, so don't misunderstand me. This is not about rights. This is about unity and oneness and dignity. That's the point, right? It's not just about having rights. It's about what does it look like for men and women to model an interdependence, a oneness, a unity together in Christ, both having same access to the Spirit of God and both capable of using their gifts to advance the mission of God as disciples. That's what's going on. So there's a lot we could say here. Um, I, I, I went too long in the first service. I just want to bullet a couple of these things that we see here. Um, just notice, if you look back at Jesus and his disciples, this, Luke's not making anything new up. This is what was happening in the Jesus community. He's just continuing the work of Jesus, right? If you look at the life of Jesus, I'll throw some slides up. Women are presented as model disciples. The language of discipleship in the Gospels is somebody who's asked to follow Jesus, somebody who's with Jesus. That preposition with is the most important preposition in the Gospels. To be with Jesus is synonymous with being a disciple. We see women with Jesus, right? Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, a beautiful little passage. Jesus is traveling from town to town, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, those are his disciples, and some women who had been healed of evil spirits, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna the wife of Chetza, Susanna, and many others who were supporting Jesus from their own possessions. These are the primary funders of Jesus's ministry. They're said to be with him, following him, i.e. being his disciples, learning from Jesus. Rabbis didn't teach women being healed by Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, being advocated for by Jesus. How many times does Jesus show up for women and say, stop doing that to the, to the religious leaders? Stop treating them that way, you're hypocrites. That's happening on a regular basis. Luke chapter 10, you could look at the story of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and realize how radical that was. Again, a rabbi would never enter a woman's house, and yet here she is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says, you've done them one necessary thing. You're sitting and learning from me. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. 
Women are presented as model disciples. Women are prioritized. This is crazy. As the first to learn about the kingdom of God. Who are the first people in Luke's gospel to hear from God? Primarily, women. They're the first to receive God's revelation. They're the first to respond to God's revelation. Mary is the first one to say, let it be to me according to your will, right? Mary says that. Elizabeth has the Holy Spirit in her. John's jumping in her womb. God is at work in her, revealing to her about her future prophetic son. I mean, let's just stop here. Women gave birth to the Messiah. Can we just like done, like done, let's like sermon over, right? Like if you give birth to the Messiah, I'd say that's pretty important. They're the first to prophesy over Jesus. We see that in Anna. The first to learn of Jesus's identity as the Messiah. You see that in the Samaritan woman. Mary and Martha are the first to witness the resurrection of Lazarus, the first resurrection there in that book, the first female disciples to visit the tomb, and the first to witness the resurrection. Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic scholar, says these women at the tomb, at the, at the resurrection tomb, are the apostles to the apostles. They're the ones sent by Jesus to go share the good news about the resurrection to his disciples. Last point I'll make. Women are even portrayed in some instances being more faithful than their male counterparts. Who flees the scene at the crucifixion? The disciples. Who remains present at the scene? The mothers, the women. They're present at the burial. They're present at the tomb. Dorothy Sayers, maybe the patron saint of the modern Christian woman, um, in her book, Are Women Human, says this, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There's never been another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, she's writing a little while ago, or the ladies, God bless them who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind, no easy, uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. I remember watching my own mom go through this kind of massive life shift when she met Jesus. We didn't grow up in church, and my mom was a very smart, accomplished woman. She grew up in rural southeast Ohio in a context that really, really just grated against her dignity, especially as a woman. And she found her escape in kind of her intelligence. She was a college, kind of a college professor type, very smart, and lived the first 39 years of her life uh, outside of Christ. And then, you know, 1993, we come to know Jesus as a family, and all of a sudden, her identity begins to shift. And all of a sudden, to watch my mom go from a person who's so ambitious in so many ways when it came to education, when it came to women's rights, I mean, my mom was all about that, um, to now really beginning to embrace an identity in Jesus. And to watch how that, like the mothers of the church coming around her, discipling her, uh, teaching her the Bible, watching her come in and begin to use her gifts and begin to reorient her life around being a disciple of Jesus. I mean, that was a category my mom didn't have. And all of a sudden now she's trying to find her identity and watching her and how that changed the way she approached her work, how that changed the way she approached parenting, how that changed the way that she approached her sister's death a couple of years ago as we're walking through that and to watch her stand up 
as a disciple at my aunt's funeral, her best friend in the world, and to give testimony to the goodness and the grace of Jesus as a disciple. It's amazing. And this was radical, and I want us to see that. The second thing, just quickly, that I want us to see is that these women were not just welcomed as disciples, but they were, their, their presence and their gifts were celebrated for mission. They were celebrated for mission. Notice Tabitha was always doing, the word there is full of, always doing, or full of good works and acts of charity. That word for charity is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6 for almsgiving. It's kind of like mercy or justice combined with generosity. It's giving to the poor. So she was not just a disciple, but she was apparently a prominent pillar in the Christian community at Joppa. She made clothing, the text says, for this really sizable population. We talked about the widows in Acts chapter 6 a few months ago. There was a massive community of widows. She made clothing for them. I mean, just do you see like the emotions here, like how deeply they're grieving over her death. Like these widows and the saints, I I believe that they sent these messengers to Peter because they knew that Peter was able to raise her from the dead. I think they, they had a hunch that maybe that was possible. And there's this urgency. It's like, man, they're eulogizing her here. Like, look at the clothing. Look at all the stuff that she did for this community. I mean, we have lost a spiritual mother. Peter, is there anything that can be done? It's likely that the church met in her home. A lot of people think that the church actually met in her upper room. They mentioned the upper room in this passage. All this suggests that she's a woman of status. She was a woman who had wealth and freedom and the gifting to support this broader community. She was using her gifts to advance the mission of the church in a really impactful way. God sees those. He sees the often overlooked works of, in this story, maybe people we might be tempted to look over. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. Again, I'll just give you a couple of examples. There are all kinds of examples in the book of Acts of women using their gifts and their presence to bring life into the world. You see, again, in Acts chapter 2, women prophesying. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 12 and 16, you see women leveraging their homes. And again, I don't want you to think of home as like Martha Stewart hospitality only, okay? Like a home, in those days, there was no difference between public and private spheres. So you ran businesses out of your home. Like your home was the center of community life. It wasn't just this thing where like, you're, you know, you're just staying at home and you're just doing hospitality in the way that we kind of think of it now. This was the center of social life, of community life in somebody's home. So they're leveraging their homes. They're leveraging their business acumen, Lydia. They're leveraging their wealth to bless the world. Acts chapter 18, women are teaching. Priscilla and Aquila, right? The famous couple, Apollos, one of the great teachers of the church, is off on his theology. And what happens? Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and they teach him and instruct him so that he can preach more accurately the way of Jesus. Those are just a few of the examples. Romans 16. You could throw this up on the, the screen and, and look at this text. I, I underlined uh, in Paul's greeting to the church at Rome all the times that women are mentioned as co-laborers in the work, right? Like a third of these names in this passage are women. There's deacons in this passage. Some people believe that Junia may have been an apostle, right? Whatever you think about notable among the apostles, right? She was a pillar of the community. And we have these lists here for a reason. And this makes sense, right? Like, what, why would we not expect to see this in the book of Acts? Right? If you think back to the story of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, the cultural mandate is given to whom? 
Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's given to both Adam and Eve. The Great Commission, which is really a restatement and an intensification of the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, go and make disciples to all nations. Who is that given to? Both men and women, right? We are to co-labor to extend God's kingdom into the world. And so I say all that to say, like, women are indispensable and essential to God's work in bringing life to the church into the world. We need to celebrate, not just tolerate, not just like passively, but like celebrate, pursue the presence and the gifts of women if we're going to have a missional impact and have missional credibility in the world. Notice when she's raised from the dead, she's so important to this community and so miraculous that a bunch of people turn to Jesus as a result of Tabitha's life and death and resurrection in this passage. We need both, men and women, using their gifts. We need to celebrate that. Where we exalt one at the expense of the other, right? Like that's what our world does, right? Like patriarchy exalts men at the expense of women. These are kind of the, this is what's on offer for us in the world when it comes to gender theory, right? Patriarchy exalts men at the expense of women. Feminism exalts women at the expense of men, which again, there's been a lot of good that's come from feminism, so like I'm not critiquing all of them, just saying it seeks to kind of lift up women at the expense of men. What the Bible presents is a vision of equality and oneness where men and women are partnering together interdependently as co-workers, co-laborers in advancing the mission of God. And where we exalt one at the expense of the other, the church does not flourish, the church languishes. Now, I have just a whole bunch of stories that I'd love to tell you. I want to make space for Robin to tell some local stories. But I just want to encourage you, we need to know these stories. There are so many incredible stories of women in church history that have done incredible things that historically have been celebrated by the church, but have gotten lost as the stories have been told over the years. We need to know these stories. We should treasure, we talk about knowing the stories of marginalized communities, knowing stories of people of color, knowing stories of people coming from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. We need to know the stories of women as well, right? Like the stories that are told are often heroic men, but we forget there's great stories of women and we need to know them. We need to internalize them. We need to treasure them, to celebrate them because these stories can stir our imagination for the full of mission being accomplished in the world. Like women in these stories and acts, they see people that often get overlooked by men, right? They see the vulnerable. They see the powerless. They know what it's like to be powerless and to experience vulnerability in a way that often men don't. And they see these people and they move towards them in mission. And we need to know those stories. Let me just throw a couple pictures up and then invite Robin up. Perpetua and Felicitas, two of the first great North African martyrs of the church. Perpetua was 21 years old, and she was brutally, savagely murdered in an arena by gladiators. Her courageous witness led to people coming to know Jesus. Fabiola, one of the wealthiest women in the Roman Empire who belonged to a historic Roman family. She survived an abusive husband. She became a Christian. She sold her possessions and distributed her proceeds to the poor. She built the first welfare center or public hospital. If you're in healthcare, you have Fabiola to thank, the very first public hospital in the West. Macrina the Younger, we've heard oftentimes of the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea. They were big defenders of the Trinity. Did you know that they were taught and educated and mentored by their older sister, Macrina the Younger? Macrina 
was uh, a gifted intellectual. She educated her brothers, persuaded them to go into ministry. When her fiance died suddenly as a young woman, she devoted herself entirely to a, a, essentially like an order of contemplative prayer, like a sustainable farming life where they gave themselves to prayer, gave their possessions to the poor, worked on a farm, and they rescued abandoned infants. Incredible. Susanna Wesley, one of my favorite examples. You know, John and Charles Wesley, we have Wesleyan churches all over the place. Um, she was in uh, a really bad marriage, so let's not glamorize uh, what she was going through. She had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. Um, she homeschooled her children, taught them Latin and Greek, 19 children. Uh, every day she would give about two hours to prayer, and I love this. She told Charles and John, when the apron's over my head, leave me alone because I'm with God, okay? Just leave me alone. And she would remove her shoes and make her kitchen a holy, sacred space to engage in prayer over her children and over her household. She raised two of the great revivalists, John, who saved England from a revolution and preached to a million people live in his lifetime. Charles was like the Bethel or Hillsong of his day. He wrote like 9,000 hymns. And they were asked this question, who had the greatest influence on your life? And both of them said, her mother. Pandita Saraswati, converted to Christianity from a strong Hindu family, Indian Christian, dedicated her life to women's education, eliminating practices of child marriage, training women teachers, founded Mukti Mission, I'm sure I just butchered that, where she rescued thousands of rural women, children, and disabled people from poverty. Somebody, the first service told me one of their family members grew up in this orphanage. Incredible. Um, prolific writer, literary scholar, translated the Bible into her native Marathi language. Last one, Madam C.J. Walker, who we should all know here in Indianapolis, if you don't know Madam Walker. A lot of people know, she was born Sarah Breedlove uh, in 1867. She was the daughter of emancipated slaves. Migrated to St. Louis. What a lot of people know about her is she was a very devout Christian. Um, she migrated to St. Louis. She converted and joined the African Methodist Episcopal Church, one of the longest standing, the oldest African-American church denomination in the world, they, they were one of the few black-led, black-owned institutions that owned their own property, trained their own preachers, had an enormous amount of influence in the, in the history of uh, the black community. And she became one of the first black female millionaires, built a cosmetics business. You see Madam Walker Theater over there. Uh, during Jim Crow segregation, she was a prominent philanthropist and activist. She fought for racial justice, women's rights, and education for the poor. And on and on and on we could go, telling these stories. These are beautiful stories. I want us, though, to pause, and I want us to hear about some stories here at SOMA. And Robin's going to come and share a little bit about what's, how, like some things we have to celebrate here, and then give us some invitations as we think about what God might be inviting us to do in response to this text. It's been, it's been really fun for Brandon and I as we've talked about this passage and celebrating the contribution of women to the mission of God to think about the beautiful and amazing women that God has brought to Soma. And thankfully, all of their names are easier to pronounce than the ancient <laughs> uh, women who contributed. But, but um, I just want to list off a few of the beautiful ways women are serving as an encouragement to see how God is inviting um, women to step into a place of using their gifts. And so um, these women, like Tabitha, through the rootedness that they have in their identity of Christ, are then living in a way that impacts um, our church and our city. So my friend Becca Miner tutors a woman who wasn't able to graduate from high school and is studying to get her GED. So they meet on Mondays, and Becca gives of her time. 
Carrie Lambert leads a Bible study for parents at the public middle school where her daughter attends. Adrienne Evans in our church is co-creator of a women's conference where hundreds of women meet um, every year to really study what does it mean to live into your identity as a daughter of Christ. Rebecca Kaur, so many of you probably were connected um, to your communities because of her. She's a face of hospitality for so many of us in this church. Jeannie Roars, my dear friend, who, if it wasn't for her, there's no way we would have gone virtual when COVID hit and shut us down, but she gave of her videography and photography time and talent to our church hours every week so that we could, um, so that we could go online. Um, I think about Emily Shields, Brandon's wife, who serves this church in a million unseen ways. Just this week, I was talking with a mama who told me that Emily was watching her daughter so that this mom could go and minister to our premarital class. Lauren Wiley, single foster mom in our church who has two foster daughters with her. One of them will almost be with her for a year, a complete year. Amy Jager uses her amazing bargain hunting skills um, and found for Poor House a bunch of bed frames that was a desperate need of ours so that the clients we move in aren't sleeping on the floor on a mattress. Nobody asked her to do that. She saw the need and she used her skills and gifting to fill it. Molly Schofield, who I love, who regularly picks up my 14-year-old daughter, which I'm very grateful for, and pours into her to model for her what does it look like to be a woman after God's own heart. Why would these women do these things? Why would they give of their time and their talent and offer it up when there could be so many other things that they do? Because I believe, like Tabitha, these women live in a way that is grounded in their discipleship with Christ. One of the very first women that poured into me as a believer was a woman that I met in a discipleship class. She wasn't leading the class, she was a participant with me. And she was in her mid-60s when I met her. I was in my um, early 20s. And we were paired together in this discipleship class to be um, accountability partners. So we would call each other and um, share the scripture that we're memorizing. And um, we would talk about what's going on. And um, little did I know that there was this beautiful, this beautiful woman was, um, was an unbelievable disciple of Christ. And so she shared her story with me as our friendship grew. Her name's Valletta. And as we became friends, Valletta shared with me that in her early 20s, as she was um, just starting off her life, she fell in love with a young man who was called to be a pastor. And Valletta had always dreamed of being a pastor's wife. So this was a beautiful answer for her. And so she um, and her husband were called to plant a church up in Michigan. And they did, and the church began to grow, and, um, and Valletta just relished this role of being wife and of being a pastor's wife. They soon had a little boy named David, and he was the delight of their lives and kind of the sweetheart of the church. It was an older congregation, so he was spoiled and loved by all. And when David was about three years old, um, though he got really sick, and um, he eventually wound up passing away um, from leukemia. And Valletta shared with me that it was, um, it was crushing in so many ways, but one of the hardest things for her was to have this identity of mother ripped away. And so they pressed on, 
And Valette and her husband continue to work in the church and the Lord um, blessed them with two more children and um, the work continued to grow. And so I remember Valetta would say to me, she was like, I just, I knew who I was as a wife and I knew who I was as um, a pastor's wife and, and as a mom and, you know, and I could, as a Bible study leader. And there were all of these ways I was pushing into this identity. And so as time um, passed, her husband became really sick and he had cancer. Um, he became so sick that they had to step out of Um, leading the church. He left as the pastor and they began to do some work with a mission agency. And um, Valletta shared that her husband had this dream when he knew, okay, his time was coming to an end. He just wanted to go and share the gospel. Like he wanted to share with the nations. And so um, Valletta did everything she could to become caretaker to enable her husband to travel, she and he together um, across the globe Um, for one year, and her husband shared a message that was called, A Dying Man Speaks to Dying Men. So what's the truth about seeing our life in light of the gospel? So now, Valetta said she threw herself into being caretaker, right? Her identity is caretaker. And and they, they completed that mission. They got home. Her husband did pass away. And so my friend Valetta finds herself now as um, no longer a wife, right? No longer a pastor's wife, not sure what she should do professionally with her role. And so she wound up with that same mission agency serving in an, administ- an administrative role, um, had an apartment right there and raising her two children. Her son went off to college. Her daughter was in high school. Her son came home from college one night with some friends and decided that they would all go bowling. They invite- he invited his sister to go along and off they went. And um, it was a really, it was just a really bad weather night and there was a lot of black ice. And so later that night, Valetta received a knock on her door and it was the police letting her know both of her children had been killed in a car accident. So, um, so now every kind of identity that she had ever felt comfortable in or pressed into stripped away. And um, what was so impactful to me was to watch this woman with so much joy and hope and faith because this is what she said, that, that what was left was the only identity that she could absolutely never lose. Her identity is a child of God and her, discipleship, her, her role as a disciple of Christ was a role that, um, that she knew would never change. And so her life began to be oriented from that. Um, and and Valletta is still alive. She, her, the Lord has, of course, used her story in powerful ways. She's written a book. She travels the world. It's translated into like 30 languages. And her message is constantly, who are you? What is your identity in Christ? Because it's in that identity it's in that identity that, um, that we actually discover who we really are. So if we're going to know what our identity is in Christ, we have to know what God says about us. That's the truest thing about you, the things that God says about you. And so we go to the word and we open it up and we say, okay, Lord, who do you then say that I am as a follower of you? And we can look in 1 John 3, 1, and he says, you are loved. In Christ, you are loved. You were created with a purpose. You're not just a carbon copy of someone else. You're created uniquely. You're chosen. You are chosen. First Peter 2, 9. 
In Christ, not only are you loved, but God chooses you. He sent his son to die in your place so that you can be included into the family of God. You are forgiven, Colossians 3.13. You're redeemed. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the former sinner, right? No, he does not see you in light of who you were. He sees you redeemed. A new creation that has been made whole. You're adopted. 1 John 3, 1. What's it mean to be considered a child of God? It means you've been adopted into his family. You're considered a legitimate child of the God of the universe, the creator of all things, having all rights and standing as his son, Jesus. That one has been really, really important and impactful for me. A few years ago, I was invited to go to a retreat that was really focused a lot around identity. And so we were given space to just open the word, to read what God's word has to say about who we are in Christ, to pray and to, and to um, hold in light to the truth of scripture, the, the potential falsehoods that we had been believing. And at that point, um, I had lost both of my parents to really grueling illnesses um, by the time I was 45. And I'm an only child. And I'm an only child of other, of other um, only children. I had no cousins. I had no um, aunts or uncles. I had no living grandparents. So I found myself really alone as far as family of origin is considered. And as I sat there during that retreat, I really heard the Lord speak over me um, just the truth of, his, of, of my adoption, my true grafting into the family tree of Christ. And I realized how much I had been allowing kind of this orphan spirit to, um, to flavor and dictate the ways that I was living. And so we were encouraged during this retreat to kind of, and we were writing constantly, journaling, hearing from the Lord, but then to really see, like, is there something specific that Christ calls out identity-wise that we need to cling to? And we would write it down on a card. And so... Um, and I did, and I have mine. What was really sweet for me was, um, I was as I was writing this, this retreat was in a house. I was um, looking at some different books in a room, and there was this little picture that fell out of one of the books, which they said I could have. I didn't just steal it, but I'll show it to you here. And I put it on the front part of my identity card. Um, this picture took my breath away because it was as if the father was giving me a visual image of a piece of identity that he wanted to speak to me. It's, um, it, it, for me, was an image of God in a fatherly way wrapping his arms around me as his child. And then what really hit me is if you look at the, the um, shadow, the, the image of the child is an infant in the shadow. And it was just the father speaking to me like from day one. From day one, I've got you. What does it mean to root our identity in Christ? So what do we do with those truths? And this is the invitation, is as you consider who you are in Christ and what your identity is in Christ, as you take that and, and put it in comparison with, with what you're actually believing or the way that you're living, and listen, hear me, 
it is not bad to love your role in your occupation or, or as a wife or as a roommate or in your community. Those are good things. And we should press into and develop those roles. But if that is where identity is based, it is as if we're building a house on sand. And that's where Valletta was able to stand up in joy, in sincere, authentic joy, and say, Jesus is good, and I know who I am in him because her identity was built on the rock. And, and that's the invitation to us is to really consider, like Tabitha, how is, why is Tabitha making all these garments for these widows? Like, go sell them, Tabitha, make yourself some money. Like, there's, there are other things that we can be doing, but her identity was rooted in being a disciple of Christ, and that drove what she decided to do. Just, just um, you know, capturing who we are from an identity standpoint in Christ isn't, isn't enough. Oftentimes, there's a discipline then of reminding ourselves about that. It's, it's the purpose of the card for me that goes in my prayer journal because there are times when I start to live as though I am other. And I wanna share with you, and this is something that has been um, transformative for me. There's three letters that'll come up here on the screen. Often, here's what I do, is I, um, I have a feeling. Um, let's say that I am, I'm, oh, I'm angry. I am feeling rushed. And I, the kids are doing something that's making me feel irritated. And so I feel angry. I have this feeling. And then I allow that feeling to inform my action. So now I'm like, oh, what is wrong with you? Get in the car or whatever it is, right? I, so, so because I have these feelings, I then act out. And then after that, I allow my identity to come from that. So I start to think, oh, I'm the worst. I, I am a terrible mother, I am unlovable, and, 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 and I just start to form these statements that are completely contrary to what Christ calls us into and so much of what the enemy of our souls wants us to believe. And so there's a discipline because feelings come, right? The discipline is, if we switch this around, um, is that when I start to feel like, oh, I'm rushed, I'm feeling angry, Hold on, who am I? I am chosen and loved and redeemed. I am a new creation in Christ. And through his power, I'm gonna respond as such, right? So then my actions are different. And then after that, the feelings that come are usually ones of relief and gratitude and peace. And so, so it's being clear on what is our identity and then how do we choose to lead with that? How do we choose to lead with that? Um, I, really, I really am thankful. I want to close and invite Brendan back up to let you know how thankful I am to be a part of a church with so many amazing men and women who are living from the truth of their identity that is resulting in kingdom impact. It is humbling and it is an honor. And I am thankful for the women who are willing to utilize their gifts to build up the kingdom. And I am thankful for the men who provide space and, um, and uh, availability for women to be able to thrive in their identity in Christ. And so as we um, prepare to go to communion, I, um, I just invite you to really think right now, what is, what's Christ say about you? What does he say about you? 
Who are you in him? Thank you, Robin. We're going to close our time with this invitation to communion. So I want to invite you just to put your stuff down and just to consider what the Spirit is inviting you into right now. How might God be inviting you to respond? We heard one invitation from Robin to learn from Tabitha what it looks like to really embrace our identity as Jesus' disciples, as front and centers, the primary way we think about our lives, to reorder all of our other secondary and tertiary identities around that one primary identity. Tabitha was a disciple of Jesus. That, is, that was foundational to her work in the community. That's what made her work in the community possible, sustainable, powerful, is that she knew who she was in Jesus. She was a person who was with Jesus, becoming like him, doing what Jesus did. And then as we come to communion, we're reminded that Tabitha, if Tabitha were standing here talking to you, she would not be saying, just be like me. Tabitha would be saying, you know what? Be like Jesus. That's the point of the Tabitha story. This is an echo of the good news of Jesus' kingdom. Tabitha clothes people in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, don't worry about your clothing. Your Father in heaven will provide for you. And he provides, through Tabitha, he provides clothing for people. When we fast forward to the end of Revelation, we see that we will one day be clothed. Jesus promises, stay here in Jerusalem till I clothe you with power. And then we see in Revelation 19 that we one day stand before God clothed with the righteousness of God and the righteous deeds of the saints like Tabitha. That's the power from this passage, not be like Tabitha, not just do these things, but to recognize that Tabitha had a Savior who raised her from the dead, who, who she trusted in, who she hoped in, who was her life. And we, like Tabitha, need to be raised spiritually. We need to be raised. We're promised to be raised physically, but we need to remember that Jesus is inviting us to be raised to be clothed with this power, we've been empowered by his spirit to do good works in his name. And that's what we celebrate here in communion each week as we grab that bread, we remind it, this is our true identity. This is the power for life. This is the power for my work tomorrow. This is the power for me to be a good husband, a good father. This is the power for me to be an activist in the community. This is the power for me to be a contemplative away from the, like, this is everything, right? And that's what we wanna come back full circle to. Imitate Tabitha as, as Tabitha imitates and is an echo, as Paul would say, of Jesus himself. Let's pray. And then I want to invite you just to take a moment to respond to what the Spirit might be leading. Maybe it's confession. Maybe it's a time of just reignited passion and hopefulness in Jesus and what he's doing in your life. Maybe you're not a Christian and you need to trust in Jesus and just surrender your agenda, your hopes, your dreams to him and, and put your trust in him. However the Spirit might be leading, let me pray for us and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for this, this text. Thank you for the ways that you are faithful to us. You've always been faithful to meet the needs of your people. You've been faithful to give us all that we need to flourish. Thank you for the story of Tabitha, for the way that you see those works that are often overlooked, the way that you empower and equip those works, and the way that you use ordinary men and women throughout the book of Acts to advance your mission in the world. It's so encouraging to somebody who feels so flawed, so powerless, so incapable to, to see these stories. It gives me hope, God, that you want to continue to work through us like that. And so I pray that you would do a powerful work through us, that you would raise us up as a church of disciples of Jesus, full of good works, full of charity and mercy and generosity, as we see in the story of Tabitha. Would you build your church through us, ordinary men and women, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.